as we were just thinking, the, the, the absolute certain goodness, the certain power, the truth of Christ Jesus so captivated the apostle John that that, that metaphor of light seemed to him the best way to communicate, uh, to, to talk about Jesus, what his character is like. He opens his gospel with that memorable phrase, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he shows that throughout the gospel, wherever the light comes, wherever Jesus speaks, wherever he acts, darkness must scatter, goodness will prevail. The darkness cannot overcome him. So whether in the, his gospel or his epistles, those letters, or the vision of Revelation, the light of God in Christ is a constant way that John interprets what Jesus was, is, was doing, and is doing now. As we saw last week, the opposition to God, the opposition to his goodness, is therefore easily thought about as darkness, as the dominion of darkness, the dominion of death, and its power. And this darkness presides over the curse of death and uses it, wields the fear of death to intimidate and control. We saw how the death of Lazarus served as, a, as an occasion then for Jesus Lazarus in the grave, Lazarus imprisoned in darkness, that becomes an occasion for Jesus to show his power over the worst that darkness could do. Bring death. And at a word, Jesus called Lazarus out of the darkness, out of death. What happens next in John's account, and that's where we're looking, beginning in chapter 11, verse 45, and we'll be reading all the way through 12, verse 11. What happens next in this account shows that the power of Jesus over, over death, his authority over darkness and evil, produces different responses. Like we might expect, oh, of course people will, to see someone able to overcome death, surely they'll be attracted to that crushing death, defying the curse. That is not necessarily welcome by all. Rebellion is real. Rebellion and rejection, rebellion against God and rejection of God, it's real. Hatred of God, hatred of the light and the life that he brings, it's as real as light and darkness itself. As John stated earlier in his gospel in chapter 3, this is the verdict, he says. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed, lest they should be laid bare, known, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out, have been done in the light or in the power of God. So coming back to the course of events at Bethany where Lazarus was raised, 
Beginning in verse 45 of chapter 11, John tells that the raising of Lazarus, that event, cut both ways. For many of the Jews who had come two miles out to Bethany, it's just it's two miles over the Mount of Olives, it's on the back side, on the east side. Many of those who'd come to grieve with Mary saw the Lord's grace, saw his power, and they welcomed it. They rejoiced, they believed in him, they put their trust in him, John says. But some were there, some saw the same stuff. They saw Jesus with compassion, they saw him then with authority and might overcome death. And they went and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. And John contrasts that action with those who had believed. So he's, those people were not running to the Pharisees to say, oh, you've got Jesus wrong. Let me tell you about what he did. He's so great. No, there's a contrast here. They were shrinking from the light. The light of God was displayed and they pulled back from it. They had already been resisting the truth of his word. And now that his power, so that they've been hearing the truth, and now that his power is on full display, they scattered for cover. As John had said, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So now, in that moment, darkness consolidates. You know, the Pharisees, they were typically enemies of the Sadducees. If you've read much of the New Testament, you've picked up on that. Pharisees, Sadducees, they don't like each other. They were enemies of the chief priests. The chief priests were Sadducees, and the Sadducees are basically um, secularists. They're worldly. They're self-indulgent. They had control of the temple as a family, and they ran it like a family business. They ran it like a mafia running a circus. And they used all the, uh, all the facets of worship of God in order to enrich themselves. They used the exchange rates. They controlled the markets. They controlled and exacted fees from people who could sell there, who couldn't sell there. It was a mafia. The family of the high priest, Annas, the sons of Annas, they're proverbial at this period for taking advantage of the people and getting tremendously rich. They were everything the Pharisees despised. The Pharisees trying to live with strict observance of the law, trying to bring about the new age of righteousness, trying to bring about uh, the messianic kingdom by their own righteousness. So they're, they're enemies, and yet, here in this moment, they find common cause. John tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests met in council. Jesus' claim to be the light and the life of the world and his demonstration of those claims with power, that drew them together. And that's often the case. Rejection of Christ makes allies. We can see it in the world today. Uh, the, the nature of evil is that it, it simply hates. And so evil parties, evil forces will hate one another. They'll tear each other. They'll make things difficult for each other until a move of God. And then they find immediate common cause. 
against the goodness of God. And common hatred unites them temporarily, and then they will go back to tearing each other. And so there in council, verse 47, they're raising this question, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They don't doubt what he's doing. This is shocking, isn't it? They know exactly, that they can see he has power. He's doing good works. He's performing signs. He's indicating he, he has righteousness, the righteousness of God. What are we to do, they ask. If he keeps going on like this, everyone will follow him. Everyone will be attracted to him, drawn to him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, that means the temple, and our nation. Last week, we, we considered how the dominion of death brings fear, even today, because of death, because of death's assertions of absolute power. It brings the fear of loss. It brings the fear of uh, losing opportunity, losing resources, losing especially control. The dominion of death stokes our craving for control, and we see it working itself out here in that council. So there's no attempt to deny Jesus has righteousness. The governing concern that they have is loss. We're going to lose our control. We're, we could lose our way of life. If we don't do something, look what could happen. We might even be totally destroyed by the Romans. Notice there is no even pretended faith in God here. The Lord is absent from this conversation. It is completely pragmatic. So even if they were totally convinced that Jesus was false, they don't trust God to defend his people. The Lord God is not in their calculations at all. He's been removed. So they're pragmatists. In the face of Jesus and his power, in the face of what he's doing, they're asking, what do we have to do, what actions do we have to take in order to save ourselves? Forget God. What do we have to do to save ourselves? And the plan that they arrive at, of course, is to kill Jesus. And in verse 10 of chapter 12, to kill Lazarus too. If Jesus can't be intimidated, if he can't be outsmarted, if he won't just go elsewhere, go back to Galilee, then they will have to kill him in order to hold on to their authority and hold on to control. The high priest Caiaphas says in verse 49 to 50, with, this is characteristic. Apparently, the Sadducees were very often rude. He's just shocking here with his arrogance. You know nothing at all, he says to the council. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The arrogance is shocking, but the stakes are clear and correct. He's got the stakes right. They are weighing the fate of the nation. They really are. 
And there's a cosmic irony too here, right? In that conversation, they are weighing the fate of all the nations. They're weighing the fate of the world. They're weighing the life of Jesus against all creation. They think they're weighing it against just their place. But there are actually, this conversation determines the outworking of the plans of God. Is it better that Jesus should die for the nation? Is it better that Jesus should die or the nation should die? Is it better that Jesus should die or the world perish? That is in this conversation. So John is very alert to this irony and he communicates it. These forces, they're opposing Jesus Christ. But John shows that even when evil makes plans, when evil thinks that it's in control, when it attempts to thwart the work of God, evil will find itself unwittingly accomplishing the works of God. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be outmaneuvered. He can't be tricked. He can't be overcome. He is the sovereign God. So they think, they think that by taking control of the situation, they are in actual fact in control of the situation. And John is making sure that we know how far from true that is. No matter what evil does, it never gets complete control of the situation. God will use it. He will accomplish his plans. And so what they do, they enact the will of God. They enact the reason why Jesus came. They enact why God is in Christ. Verse 51, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priests that year, he prophesied unwittingly that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Notice the, the substitutionary atonement. That is, this was God's plan. Jesus would die on behalf of the nation, on behalf of people everywhere who would receive him. In our place, that's substitution. So now, unknowingly fulfilling the plans of God, it isn't just those who are rebelling against him. It's also those who love him, unknowingly fulfilling the plans of God. There's another council that's taking place in this section of the, the gospel. But this one is full of love and fellowship. As much as that one's full of hate and animosity, this one is love and fellowship. On the other side of the response to what Jesus did at Bethany, to the raising of Lazarus, council of the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests and a meal in Bethany with his friends, the family of Lazarus, his disciples. After he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, John tells us that this light of God went out into the wilderness. He went 14 miles. That, that town, Ephraim, is 14 miles north, four or so miles east of Jerusalem. 
While his enemies were making counsel against him, he was teaching the disciples. And then on his way to the Passover feast, there's some other notable incidents that happen. On his way, he stopped at Jericho. That's where he called Zacchaeus back to life. Kids, you remember that story? Zacchaeus, the wee little man. The wee little man he was. Climbed up in a tree. That happened on the way to this feast. And then as he was leaving Jericho, that town where Zacchaeus lived, Bartimaeus was there at the gates, blind. Jesus brings light to him. So as he's going to this Passover feast to die, he's giving life, he's giving life as he goes, and then he comes to this feast. Verse 1 of chapter 12, six days before the Passover, he receives a dinner to honor him. It's kind of opposite what the council was planning. And yet, even at this dinner, it's in his honor, the plan of God that he would die, it's present. They're plotting to bring it about over there. And here in Bethany, they're celebrating who he is and his goodness. And yet the plan of God is present there too. He's going to die because that's the plan. In that meal, we don't exactly know what stirred her, but Mary was moved to an urgent display of love. Verse 3, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. That's a plant. It's also the ointment made from it. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That was the family's savings. At this time, exchange rates would go up and down, but really the, mo the biggest problem was coinage. Actual money was in very short supply. There, there just wasn't a lot. And it was based, the value of a coin was based on the metal in it, not like our currency. So the, the gold itself or the copper itself had value. There wasn't much. So perfume was a form of savings. Families would keep a jar. It could be added to. It could be sold off in small increments. Or it could be sold in part or at whole. It could be, it, it could be, built up. And so here was the family savings. We, we hear that it's a year's salary, 300 denarii. That, that's a year's wages. That's a year of food. In this jar, a year of food, a year of security. Remember last week we saw with Lazarus' death and they, as, as they contemplated if he passes or then when he does pass, what are we going to do? They are vulnerable. But they had this. They had this jar. They had a year of security. This is a shocking display. It shocks everybody there. There's nothing pragmatic about it. There's nothing prudent. Mark relates, Matthew and Mark both, that in general, the disciples were bothered by it. John gives special attention to Judas here, but they were all kind of bothered. John highlights Judas because that's kind of a special way of highlighting the, the inner posture that opposes honor to Jesus, that, didn't, that would deny honor to Jesus for any reason. That's a Judas position. 
So why does Mary do this? Why would she do this? Why would she take all of their security and literally pour it out? Well, Jesus had shown them and they had accepted really and truly. They had believed that he is their life. He is their security. So Mary's action in anointing the Lord and the other gospels tell us that she poured some on his head and then some on his feet that John highlights. It was an act of going all in with Jesus. He is our security. In our marriage ceremony, the Anglican marriage ceremony, goes back to the Middle Ages. We promise each other at the exchange of rings. We say, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. It's, it's complete giving of self. It's complete trust. With all that I am and all that I have, I, I honor you. And that is what Mary does here. It's, and she, with not just words and promises, she takes all of their security with it all. I honor you. And she, pour, she pours out this ointment on Jesus' head and his feet. She pours out her life. She pours it out on him. She trusts him completely. This is a sign of atonement. The complete identification of one's life with God. And God drawing that life into himself. And then substituting. And Jesus affirms it. He affirms it strongly. Verse 7 is... Uh, it's a difficult sentence, difficult to translate, kind of unclear, no matter how you translate it. Uh, if you have four, we have four versions of the Bible, they'll all translate it a little differently. It's idiomatic. But Jesus seems to say, step off, <laughs> leave her alone. That is, this is right. What she's doing is right. She has saved this up for this day. For this moment of my burial. It says the day of my burial. Um, but she's, she has preserved it. She didn't know it at the time. She didn't know it. But she was saving this up for this anointing. This is the purpose of the ointment. Because I am now going to die. It's for this. And it's right. It's right. It's right because this kind of uh, hungry desire to honor Jesus is precisely the right response to him. It's the one we should have. Jesus is saying to them, this is the response you should all have. It's right. It's right for us to take stock of who we are, of what we've been given, and eagerly seek to offer it all to Jesus, to offer it to the Lord who is our life. We'll say it shortly in our liturgy. We offer you, O Lord, our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice. It's the right response to Jesus. It's also right because when we do that, when we offer all that we are, when we enact it and we don't just say it, things are easily said, 
then we'll find ourselves caught up in the work of redemption. We'll find ourselves caught up in the work of God, the ways of God. What I mean is when we're moved with love for Christ Jesus, and then action flows out from our desire to honor him, we are working in accord with the heart of God. The Spirit honors Jesus. That's what he does. That's his primary motive in the world is to honor Jesus. And so when we do anything, when we act in honor of Jesus, we are in step with the Holy Spirit. So there, there is the contrast of darkness and light, of the responses to Jesus. When the Lord Jesus moves, when, when the ways of his kingdom challenge us, because they do on a daily basis, when, when who he is and what he desires confront us, we feel the tugs of flesh and spirit. We feel the tugs of darkness and light. Our flesh still, our flesh is going to die. Our flesh still persists under the dominion of death. We're freed from that in the spirit, but we feel its tug. So like the counsel of hate set against Jesus and the counsel of friendship in Bethany, we feel those pulls. And even though, though we've been brought into the light, we hear the voice of Judas in our flesh. We feel the betrayer, our betrayer, us, our old rebel. We feel it tug. We hear the voice telling us to seek control, to clutch, hold back. Some, if you give that, if you do that, you will lose honor. If you do that, you, you think you're honoring God, but you're gonna, you're gonna miss out, you're gonna lose out. Someone else is gonna get some honor. And so we're urged not to honor God, not to honor anyone else. Our flesh is out for itself. But we have this hope as an anchor for our souls that Christ is our life. That's our anchor. He's our life. He's our light. He secures us. We are everlastingly held in him. We have the same assurances that Mary of Bethany had. We've been made one with him. He has atoned for us, and he's filled us with his life. So we can trust him. We can trust him with everything. We can yield up everything to him. We can yield up our lives, what we have, our hopes, our plans. We can yield it all up, and we can yield up the desire for control. It's also wise. It's not just good for us. It's also wise because his plans cannot be thwarted. It would be wise for us to cooperate. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you teach us, that you preserve for us this account of your doings, 
this account of how you accomplished the redemption of the world, how you included actual people, you included their decisions, you included the counsels of evil, you included the desires of the faithful. Thank you for showing us that all of that, you take it up and you make use for our good and for our redemption. Teach us, Lord, to number our days rightly. Teach us to value them rightly and to assess them rightly. I pray you would stir us to acts of surrender to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.